There is a, apparently, of all cars, there's a Lexus out in the parking lot with uh, your lights on. So uh, save us all, you know. I mean, if, if you're rolling up in here in a Lexus and you leave your lights on, there's something wrong about that. So uh, for whoever owns a Lexus that comes here, can you please see me afterwards? I'd like to talk to you about a couple fundraising opportunities that we have <laughs> coming up as well. That would be phenomenal. Um, so I used to think that the church was made up of awesome people. In fact, I, I grew up thinking that the church was just a big gathering of awesomeness. Awesome people gathering to do awesome things, and they all had awesome hearts. And, uh, and, and, and why wouldn't you think that? Because when, it seemed like when everyone would come to church, that they would just have, be wearing their awesome smiles, you know? And just everyone, like, their shirt said awesome, their, their socks were imprinted with awesome. Like, everything just seemed, one more time, awesome, you know? It just, just seemed like everyone was great. But um, as I grew older, uh, like 10, 11, 12, I started realizing that these same awesome people that were smiling were... Uh, some of the same people that had deep hurts and pains. And, um, and I realized then that the church isn't a gathering of awesome people, but rather it's a gathering of a bunch of people that are in incredibly different places. And, and I, I, I want to take a second right now and just say this. Um, there are some people in this room right now that have burdens financially, that I, I can't even begin to understand. And it's, it's, it's weighing you down to the point like where you entered this room even just like you, you, you not knowing what you're going to do. Like you've got no clue. Uh, there are some of you in here that don't have a job and you're wondering where that's going to come from. There are some of you in here, bur- anyone's burden with schoolwork? Any burden with schoolwork? All right, two of you. The rest of you don't do homework. There's, a, it, there's, there's some of you in relational chaos that are here. Like, there's just this tension going on, whether it's um, in your marriage or in another relationship. That aren't we just a bunch of messed up people? Like we're just we're really a gathering of a whole bunch of people that are saying, like here I am, right? Like empty-handed, I have nothing to give. It's only by the grace of God that I'm here. But I fear what happens too often is when we do get together, is we just forget to breathe. We just forget to sit back a couple, just a couple seconds of the moments that we're together and remember that, that there is something joyful about joining together as the church. Like, though we're not awesome people, this still is awesome. The fact that we have each other, relationships and unity and the opportunity to join together, that is incredible. And so we haven't gathered as awesome people, but we've gathered worshiping a great, holy, righteous God. And look, I do not want any of my, uh, any of my stuff, my burdens, my junk, to take out the enjoyment of the Word of God tonight. Do you hear me? I don't want any of your stuff, all right, your financial burdens, your relational, any of that, to stop us just from in sitting back and enjoying the word. Is that cool with you? Because let me tell you this. Of all of the stories in the Old Testament, especially post-Exodus, this is one of the most beautiful, enjoying stories in the entire Old Testament, right? It's top whatever, 10 or 15. Phenomenal story. So, no matter how you came in here, no matter where your heart's at, no matter the burdens that are weighing you down, I want to pray right now that we just enjoy this time. That we enjoy it. There's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, but the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? So are you guys excited to be here tonight? Right on. So let's, let me pray for enjoyment, all right? And then we'll dig in to one of my favorite stories in the scripture, hence the living room. Let's pray. God, I ask that no burden, no stress, no tension, no angst will get in the way of the of the opportunity that we have now to sit back and just to see you at work. And so God, I pray right now for a releasing in my friends in this room. That they'll release their grip on their stuff. That they'll cast their anxieties on you. And that tonight as we worship and learn and grow, that you would convict us but you would remind us that there's no condemnation in you. There's freedom, joy, and hope, and celebration, and that you're alive. So God, give us that picture tonight in your holy and awesome and wonderful name. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Um, I believe it's page 627, though don't quote me on that. Now, a little bit of a recap, and we're going to dive in. Last week you saw that Nebuchadnezzar the king, the ruler of the modern world, built a huge, enormous, if that's even a word, golden statue. It stood 90 feet tall. I shared with you last week the Statue of Liberty is 120 feet. So like a head, the head and the crown short, like this, this statue is huge. Made of gold plates, it stood nine feet wide. So this is like a totem pole type statue. I showed you uh, last week that this uh, right here from floor to ceiling is 35 feet. So behind me, you can get a picture of like two and almost a half times taller than this ceiling. A huge statue. He builds it. He gathers all of the leaders of Babylon together. And he says this. The herald, actually. He says, listen, when you hear the bagpipe and the lyre and the horn and all the musical instruments... Here's what you're going to do. You're going to bow down and you're going to worship this big golden statue. And then he adds something else. He adds a little caveat. Not only are you going to bow down to the golden statue that I produced, if you don't, to the fiery furnace with you. And that's where we left off, right? We know that amidst all of these people, there are at least three, maybe four Jews who were exiled, who so far have not compromised. I share with you in our first week, there were probably 75 Jews exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. And we know, of at least, we know of at least four that the scripture records that have not compromised. So the big cliffhanger to the great story last week was, what will these Jews do? All right, here we go. Daniel chapter 3. Please, if you've heard the story before, hear this with fresh ears tonight. Trust me, there will be a ton of fresh stuff. Daniel chapter 3 verse 8. Here we go. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Um, now, you remember what I shared with you about the Chaldeans. The Chaldean is another way of saying the magician or the sorcerers, the enchanters of Babylon. Okay? These were the people that uh, were, the, were the wise men of Babylon that was all wrapped up in a magic and sorcery. What does the scripture say? That they came and what? What's the word there? Maliciously accused. Interesting uh, footnote here. The uh, word for malicious in the Aramaic is, I'm going to try this, a hall. Okay, it's, sounds like I just coughed up a cat or something, I know, but, but actually I think I did pretty good, right? It's a hall, something like that. Listen, listen. it means to, to bite into pieces. So these Chaldeans are accusing these Jews with with a vigorous approach, with an attack, desiring to devour them. But the big question is why, right? Why, will these, why would these Chaldeans be accusing these Jews? And we don't know what yet that they're accusing them of. You remember what happened. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams a few uh, stories ago. And then what happens? He, uh, he escalates Daniel, gives Daniel promotion, and then Daniel remembers who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, okay, look, I don't just want to be prime minister of Babylon, which was probably equivalent. He says, I want you to hook my boys up too. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego become uh, leaders of certain uh, amounts of the province of Babylon. And so the thing that's driving this malicious attack is envy, jealousy. A quick question, just so you can put yourself here in the story. Have you ever been so envious of someone before that you literally wanted to bite them into pieces? Think about it. Okay? So you can feel the tension and the angst of the Chaldeans here. Have you ever felt that way before? Someone won up to you, showed you, up schooled you perhaps. And like in your heart, it literally, like you wanted to bite them into pieces. Well, this was the heart of the Chaldeans. And here's what they accused them of. Verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, Right? A little uh, pointless nonsense here, just uh, puffing up the king. Verse 10, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Verse 11, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into, the, into a burning fiery furnace. Strategic move. How many of you guys have older brothers and sisters? Raise of hand, right? 
right here, those of you that raise your, raise your hand, how many of you would consider yourself the master tattletale? All right, any of you just mastered it, right? You know, you know, listen, you know it's the master tattletale. Your opening line is, uh, so, hey mom, didn't you say that we weren't supposed to eat the cookies from the counter, right? Like, wasn't that what you, wasn't that what you said, mom? I'm just curious. Did you say that? I just, you know, you know that's what your opening line. And then mom, of course, replies, well, well, yeah, I did. Oh, well, that's interesting to note because brother over there just hooked up a few of them. You know what I'm saying? Swiped them, right? This is the, like these guys, master tattletales, right? They, they come to the king and they're holding the king to his word. Didn't you say, king, that anyone who doesn't bow down is going to be cast into... Didn't you say that, king? Well, the king has only one way to go. Well, of course I said that. But listen, I, I want to take one side note here. Is that okay if I can? This is why one of the reasons that I really encourage you when you're praying to plead the promises of God. It's for the same reason. When you plead the promises of God, you're holding God to his word. God, I know in your word, you tell us that there's rest for the weary. And so God, I'm pleading right now for rest because I feel weary and burdened and heavy laden. You tell me in your word to cast my burdens on, to cast my anxieties on you because you care for us. You see what I'm saying? When you hold the king, the one true king to his word, he is without fail. And this is what the Chaldeans are attempting to do here with King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 12. There are certain Jews, they say, which, hold on, isn't that interesting? Like I've mentioned before, they tried to bring these Jews into what? Into their culture, all right? Trying to make them Babylonians. They brainwashed them for three years. And this is the second time now in Daniel, we saw Daniel called a what? Do you guys remember? Uh, last week, we saw Ariar call him an exile, okay? So he doesn't refer to him as a Babylonian. And here, they're still bearing the name Jews. Interesting. In moments of tension, they're going back to their old name. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, they're Babylonian names. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. This would uh, spark the king's interest. Listen. Apparently what's happened, and we can only assume this, is that all of these leaders are before the big golden image. And apparently what's happened is though it wasn't a big deal because there must have been so many of them, apparently a few of them didn't bow. Apparently when the music played in the bagpipe, don't you guys love, don't you guys love a good bagpipe? You know what I'm saying? The thing gets low and that, yeah, right? All right, I do. Anyway, I love, I love me a good bagpipe. The bagpipe filled and the lyre and the harp and all these instruments started playing. Well, apparently, there were some of these Jews who didn't fall. And the Chaldeans then, in their envy and in their rage and in their malicious attack, take note of it. Look, king, there's some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Huge moment of tension. What is Nebuchadnezzar going to do? So far in Daniel, he's proven to be pretty gracious, hasn't he? Come on, seriously? The dude flies off the handle at the, at, the, at the thought of lint in his pocket. Verse 13. Not sure if they had pockets. Verse 13. Then, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. I've told you over and over and over, this egomaniac, this egotistical, prideful, arrogant man is so insecure. Those of you that struggle with the, the greatest amount of pride in your life, you desire to be the focal point of attention. Your life is ultimately all about you. Those are the same people that outwardly are, pridefully, uh, are prideful and inwardly are just struggling with insecurity. Insecurity is shown by extremes. Nebuchadnezzar never appears to be middle of the road. He's either like, oh, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of hosts. This is awesome. I'm the golden head. Or everybody dies. Remember what he said? When, when no wise man could interpret the dream, everyone dies. This dude is flying off the handle, and here he hears that three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, aren't bowing down to his gods, and he is filled with fury. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Real quick, these are 20-year-old boys, maybe 21, young and the king of the modern world, Nebuchadnezzar, is looking at these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is it true, boys, that of all the leaders, you three didn't bow when the music played? 
Look what, he, uh, look what they say. Um, verse 15. Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, what does he say? What does he say? Well and what? Good. Listen, this is huge. This is a second opportunity of temptation. This is so revealing for you and I. I believe in my heart that the second opportunities, the second chance temptations are oftentimes the more difficult than the first. Haven't you found that? It's at times much easier when you come to moments of compromise. Compromise or not, given or not, indulge or not. It's at times easier the first time that it appears. Let's, let's use an example. Um, have any of you guys ever, let's, let's use hypotheticals because we don't want to call anyone out here. Have any of you ever thought about cheating in school before, right? Like when you were growing up in junior high, or high have, right? Did you ever maybe think about looking at it, right? Yeah. Now look, r- remember, the first time that your friend comes up to you and they're like, uh, hey, here's the deal. I know you're taking that biology test on whale parts. Um, and uh, you guys remember that. You guys remember that. Um, I, have the, I have the exact test. And in your strong, no compromise way, you're like, you know what? I'm just not big into cheating. And you, and you stay strong. Like, you hold firm. No compromise. But then they add something else. They're like, oh, it, but I, I, have the whole, I, li- I literally have the whole exact test. And then all of a sudden you're like, seriously? And you guys know that moment. The moment that you become curious is the moment when things begin to turn. Uh, oh, seriously, you have the exact, yeah, actually, I have it right here. Oh, inter- interesting. And you're like, like looking down, trying to maybe at least get two or three, you know. You're still like, your convictions, oh, it's only two or three. And, and then before long, like you're writing the entire test up your arm, right? I mean, you have like the whole thing going up. These boys have a second opportunity to fail. Nebuchadnezzar didn't see them, apparently. And now he's given them a second moment, a second chance to give, in, to give in and compromise. I want to contend to you that the longer indulgence lingers, the sooner each of us are tempted to fall. You guys know what I'm talking about. Those of you who struggle here with internet, sexual sin, or pornography, it begins with what? Very innocent. Facebook now has become one of the most pornographic things that I've ever seen, right? I saw a post actually, or I heard about a post that someone put up, uh, even here from our church, calling out women in our, calling out women in general for putting up uh, pictures of themselves in bikinis. And it's like, it it begins there. It begins almost kind of innocent. Oh, it's just Facebook. Look at this, you know, whatever it is. And then pretty soon the curiosity begins to turn. And pretty soon, indulgence lingers. And then pretty soon, you're in full-fledged pornography, right? You know how this works in relationships, in finances, in how honest you are. All of these things. The longer indulgence lingers, the quicker it weeds out those who desire to compromise or not. And I want to contend to you that this story tonight is going to open up our eyes to how we stay strong not just at the first hit of compromise or not, but as indulgence is lingering out there, as the carrot is being dangled, I'm telling you, in this story, we get a brilliant secret of how you and I can stay strong. Of how you and I, it's second, third, fourth chance at temptation. Are you sure? Come on, just get a little bit curious how we can stay strong. So check this out. Unbelievable stuff here happens. But if you do not worship, he says... You shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And look what he does here. This is gutsy. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Okay? How many of you wives in here would admit that your husbands have deep-rooted short-term memory, right? How many of you wives? Just raise your hand, right? Honey, thank you for that. Anyone else? Right? Yeah. Listen, this guy has... Do you remember what just happened? Literally verses ago, we don't know how many days or in chronological order, how far along ago this was. He was prostrate on the ground before Daniel saying, your God is the God of gods. Your Lord is the Lord of kings. 
And now he calls God to the table. What God can save you now, essentially, is what he says. Now listen, these next three verses, 16, 17, 18. Seriously, if you don't hear or see anything else in Daniel, could you at least see this? Could you, please? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Yes. Like, this is, there is nothing even for us to say in response to that. Everything you've just said, that, that you said that we didn't worship, we're guilty as charged. We have no defense. We have nothing to say. Here we stand. Listen, 20, 21-year-old, unseasoned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, looking in the face of Nebuchadnezzar, there's no need to answer. Look at this. Verse 17. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. This boggles my mind. These 20, 21-year-old, unseasoned, Young men, deported from Jerusalem, brainwashed, attempted to for three years. They have a grasp of the character of God that reaches depths that you and I could only long to get. They have an understanding that their God, listen, is able to deliver them from something that is humanly, physically impossible. That their God could literally save them from the flames of a furnace and pull them out unscathed. They have a picture and a trust of their God that no matter what could happen, their God is able. He's able. I don't care what you say about my God. My God is able. He can. He has the power. But if it ends there, if it stops there, then their depth, their knowledge, their understanding of God sells a little bit short. But thankfully it doesn't in verse 18. Look at this unbelievable verse. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen, I don't know how many times you heard this story growing up. Okay? I don't know how many, I don't know how many felt boards you saw the story on. All right? I don't know how many children's Bibles you've seen this story, right? And, you know, the, the fiery furnace is never too fiery, right? It's, it's all, like, painted in this nice kind of, it's a small world after all picture. Everything's nice. Well, they just, you know, it's, no, no one wants to hurt anybody. No. This is an intense moment. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, our God is able. But if he doesn't save us, if we get thrown in the fire and we burn to death, we will still not bow. 20, 21-year-old, unseasoned, young men have a depth, an understanding that God is able, God's ability, and they have a crazy understanding of God's will. God is able to save us, but He may not. And even if he doesn't, we will still not bow. Our view of God's ability is not hindered by whether God saves us in this moment or not. Do you guys get this? Even if you don't, you've got another 10 or 15 minutes here. Stay with me. Now, listen, I want you to journey with me here for a bit. Can you? Will you do this with me, please? We have to hang here. And I think if we hang here for a bit, what comes out of this, friends, First question, what would you say is the most powerful thing you have ever witnessed God do? Just think about it, okay? What would you say is the most powerful thing you've ever seen God do? All kinds of things racing in your mind. Your answer to that question, whether you answer it now or later as you're journaling, as I'm sure all of you do, Right? Your answer reveals three things. It reveals your view of God. However you answer that question, the most powerful thing God's ever done in your existence, it reveals your view of God. Okay? It reveals your definition of power. 
and it reveals how you believe God's power is being worked out here and now on this earth. It reveals those three things. How would you answer that question? Now, you ready? Listen to this. So, Calvin right here. Calvin answered this question in his mind, probably, hopefully, right? Have you slept today? You good? You answered. All right, right. He answered the question. One man in here, he thought of the most powerful thing that God had had done. Let's say that most of you in this room answered this question. I would be willing to bet that very few were similar. Can we agree? Most of us have a different answer to that question. Okay, so we would say something like... um, we saw some crazy salvation. Someone go from this to this. Or we, maybe we saw a healing or someone, whatever. There could be a litany of answers here. Uh, maybe it was a worship encounter, an experience that you had, whatever. Everything in this room, different answers to that question. What's the most powerful thing that God has ever done? Is that a little bit heavy? Now, if you think that's a little bit heavy, thinking that all the different answers in this room, just represented by our small congregation here, Right now, it's 7.48 Central Time. All of the people in all of the world, in all of their answers of that question, what is the most powerful thing God has done? Okay, Some would have an answer to that question. Some don't even know God. But all the people that could and would answer that question, what's the most powerful thing God has ever done? Do you understand the weight of that? That question... The answer to that question is where God's power gets very personal. God's power gets very, very personal very quick when each of us, even in all the world, all the Christians of the world, what's the most powerful thing God has ever done? When we answer that question, we see how personal God's power gets. But that power doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of His immense power and authority. Do you get that? Your little bubble, your little story, so incredible. Praise God. Powerful indeed. Enhanced your picture of his character. It doesn't even begin to scratch the picture of a God who holds the world in his hands and has given all of those millions of people a personal experience of his power. Is that heavy, friends? Think about that. Millions and millions and millions and millions of different answers. But that's just the beginning. There's a reason why God's ability and God's will must coexist. Let me explain. A good, uh, good friend of mine, guy youth pastored for three years, passed away a few days ago in a car accident. His name was Colin Davis. Okay. Now, You take tragedy, Colin Davis, and you wrestle with the tragic death of a young boy, I think he's 22, 23 years old. And you say, God is able and was able to save him. But he didn't. It wasn't his will. It wasn't his plan. He's able, but he didn't. You see, that's where these two things coexist. Where it gets dicey is with the same example. We say Colin Davis. Well, why didn't God save him? What was God thinking? What was God doing? And because of God's will and our wrestling with it, we begin to doubt God's ability. You see. We take his will and say, God, are you, are you sure? Are you serious? And we sit back then and we begin to doubt God's ability. And pretty soon, God isn't able. God's not able to save. He didn't save Colin. He must not be able to save at all. You see how quick we make the jump. All of this affects our view of God's power. Now. One more thing, and I think this will make sense to you. The whole key here is these boys obey. And why do they obey? Because they have a deep understanding that my theology of God 
all of my understanding and perception of his will cannot and never affect my view of his ability. And so all the time, God is able, and all the time, God is accomplishing his will, and all of that is God's power. You see? And so, when I come, listen, when I come to a point of compromise, what I'm really asking is, is is God able? God says that he can fulfill me, that he can satisfy me, that he can be my, that he's my creator, that he is the one who loves me. And every time I come to this point of compromise, what I'm answering is, is, is God able? And when I answer no, then what I'm saying is, alcohol certainly is able. Sexual addiction certainly is able. Okay? A broken whatever in our life is certainly able. Pornography is certainly able. Sex, sexually driven relation is certainly all these things then become able, and the same person in your seat right now who said, I believe in God's power, and God's power is so personal to me, are sometimes the same people who are saying, yeah, but my God's not able, because this happened over here, and it began to deeply affect my view of God's ability. Do you understand The beautiful picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they say, God is able, but if he kills us, I will still not worship you. If God allows us to go in this fiery furnace, it doesn't matter. My circumstances do not change my view of God's ability. Are you with me, church? Anything that distracts and deters believers beginning to cause doubt in our hearts about God's ability will soon cause us to stop believing in His sovereignty and will completely wreck our entire view of God. Are you with me? So what we see in this story beginning to unfold, second chance temptation is ludicrous. The dangle of stupid sin becomes meaningless. And that's what these guys say. They're like, are you serious? You want us to bow down to a golden image? No, 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 you don't understand. My God is able, and his will will be done. You can dangle whatever carrot you desire. It does not lure me. It does not satisfy me, and it is not able. My God fulfills, my God saves, and my God loves. The carrot becomes ludicrous, but it's not right now for many of you. It's luring, it's attractive. Why? It's stupid. Isn't it? It's foolishness. It will fail. We have an able, willing, loving God who is all-powerful. And tonight, I, I hope you're beginning to get the picture. I can't even fathom the beginning of the power of God. I can't even begin to fathom it. So they say, even if you uh, throw us in and God doesn't save us, it won't change our minds. Now, you ready? Here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar really likes this. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Uh, again, he's never one just to beat around the bush, right? Oh, that sounds nice, guys, right? Like, appreciate that whole God talk. No. He's filled with fury. And I love this, why the writer adds this. This had to be awesome. And the expression of his face was changed. Now, can we just pause here for a moment, right? Like, you picture a king in ancient Babylon, right? Five, whatever, 80 or 90 B.C. What the face, what the wretched, I'm not even going to try because it'll just get really cheesy and weird right now. But, but the face of just an upset, angry world leader, can you picture it? He's filled with fury and it, so much so that his face contoured in like such an Ace Ventura way that, you know, it somehow it just, it got interesting here, right? The expression on his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, a little bit on the furnace, just so we understand. Um, do you guys remember kind of the shape of the old, like remember when they used to, I think it was in the 80s, when they would put milk on the front doors, the milkman? Was that in the 80s? I don't know. Was it? Help me here. When they would put orange juice and stuff and apples, when people like used to deliver, do you remember this? Anyway, when was it? Seriously, help me. I don't, not the 80s. Okay. You're saying before, right? The 90s. The, okay, right. Oh, the 90s, right? So you guys, you guys, you guys have seen Tom and Jerry, though, right? You know, like the 
you know, like the, the shape of an old milk carton. Okay, Th- this was probably what the furnace looked like, like an old-fashioned milk carton. At the bottom would be a place where you could add wood and, and different things to heat, coal, and, and these kind of things. At the top would be the place of no dice, right, where the place where you get thrown in. And there was probably some kind of way to, to look inside a through, whether it was a, kind of a, a shimmery glass kind of structure or, or if it was just through the opening. But kind of get that picture. He's filled with fury so much that he orders it heated seven times hotter. I don't, I don't want to be the guy who's like keeping the thermometer on that, right? Like if you're the guy that's in, in ancient Mesopotamia, I can't imagine that their ways of gauging temperature was very accurate, right? Uh, it sure is hot, right? Uh, okay, that, that's at least three times hotter, right? Like the point here is he is not thinking, and, and we're going to see that. He is not thinking, he's not thinking right. He ordered the furnace, he did seven times hotter. Verse 20, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army. This is huge, huge, huge detail. Some of his greatest soldiers, some of his big ballers, some of the guys that are the strongest, he orders them to do what? To bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. So they were thrown in fully clothed. For what purpose? I guess to heat up and to, and to cause the clothes to catch on fire quicker, which again doesn't make sense. If you're filled with fury, why would you want to warm the process up? Why would you, you, like you want people to suffer? He's not thinking here, look at this. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you ever seen that piece of the story? These men are standing up, dropping people in. Okay, hold on, listen. Pause. This is a real story. All right? I know it's really easy at this point, in your mind, to be picturing like cartoon characters, right? Like, do 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 you know, and everyone's like, oh, look at the fire. All right? This, this is real people. So picture this scene. Okay, some of the Chaldeans are probably there. Okay? The king's certainly there, some of his court. This furnace is here. And these soldiers, some of his best, strongest, mightiest, are going up and dropping these men in, and they are burning alive. Like, not only are these men being dropped in the furnace, but some of his finest are up at the top of this on fire. A real story. The insecure King Nebuchadnezzar is willing to please himself just to do whatever it takes to fulfill his emotion at the moment. Many of you can relate to that, huh? Some of you especially who are emotional people, it's all about fulfilling and gratifying the emotion of the moment. If you could just satisfy the emotion, the high or the low of the moment, then in your insecurity, you feel somewhat more valued. You're just like Nebuchadnezzar. Fury, rage, heated up. His best men are up there at the top, frying. All right? Powerful, powerful scene. Verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Huge heat, huge fire. Nebuchadnezzar, in his insecurity, throws these three men in. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. Can you picture this scene? Utter chaos is breaking out. People are dying. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting back taking joy and pleasure in watching the death of these men that are in the furnace. But all of a sudden, his countenance changes. All of a sudden, the strange face becomes astonishment. He's astonished, verse 24, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three bound into the fire? They answered and said, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like literally in the Aramaic a son of God. He looks into this thing. Can you picture this? Throws him inbound. He looks into this, in, in this thing. All of a sudden Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
the scripture get like they're like strolling around in the furnace, right? They're like looking at each other like not too shabby in here, right? Like this feels this could be nice in the winter time, right? And, and not just that, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and there's a fourth. Now, the big question is who's the fourth, right? I hope that's your question. Who's your fourth? So, just just throw out some possible answers. Anyone? What's that? Gabriel, sure, an angel. What else? What's that? Uh, G- you say Raphael, like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Right? Donatello was in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, now, th- there's no way for us to know for sure. Okay? Could be a pre-incarnate Christ. Could be an angel. There's no good indicator, even from the Aramaic, though it, it references Son of God. We're getting the perspective of who? Of Nebuchadnezzar. So he looks in, he says, oh, it's a son of God because it's, it's apparently a shining person. Either way, clearly an agent of God. Agent of God comes in. We have four people in the furnace. I think we'd all agree they'd be burning by now. The power of God manifested in a sovereign moment for three unseasoned young men who said, put us in, and if you, if you do and we die, it matters not because we will not bow to your stupid, golden, ridiculous image. Now look what happens. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Interesting command. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw, huge detail here, that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had ever, con- uh, had ever come upon them. Have you ever been to a bonfire? Okay? Bonfires are amazing. We're going to have a huge one at the ranch this weekend. What you do after a bonfire? You take a shower, right? You, you smell like bonfire, all right? For me, I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a, you know, I love bonfires, don't like the smell. They come out, no singed hair, no smell, no sign literally that they were in there. And the huge key phrase is the fire had no power. In comparison to God, the fire could not even begin to touch the ability of God. Now, quick note, and then we're going to finish up. In Jeremiah 29, we see a picture of Zedekiah and Ahab being burned by Nebuchadnezzar in a fiery furnace. Not saved, thrown in the fiery furnace, and killed. And so we say, well, well, why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why were they saved? Why not Zedekiah? What? Like, why isn't there some consistency here? Why doesn't everyone who's a follower of God get thrown into the, into the, the fire and not get saved? Well, why does that happen? This is the power of God that you and I cannot even begin to fathom. And folks, that's the blessing of serving this God. Is He's a God we cannot fully understand, but He's a God that we get to sit back and say, Your will be done. I don't know, and I'm not sure, but I know this. The end of everything is your glory, and I'm fine with that. Are you? The end of everything, the glory of God, are you okay with that? If not, then you're the person who's saying, my God's not able. It's my life to hold. Shadrach and and Abednego, Meshach and Abednego, they sit back and they say no. So he says, son of the most high God, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. 
and yet set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Again, like last week, we're, we're like, we're like what? Nebuchadnezzar's becoming a, a god follower, a god fearer. Don't you remember what Nebuchadnezzar believes? He's a polytheistic man. He believes in many gods. And so just like before, he's just throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God on the pile and maybe even at the top. Your God apparently is higher and has more power than all the other gods that I worship. Therefore, verse 29, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall, look, he's just, he loves torture, shall be torn limb from limb. He go, this is how insecure the guy is. He goes from saying, anyone who, who doesn't worship my God, you're dead. Now he says, anyone who doesn't worship their God, torn limb from limb. And their house is laid in ruins if the limb from limb wasn't bad enough. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Unbelievable. Now, here's the pertinent question for us. I was thinking about this for several days. I've had many conversations about this question, and I want to ask it to you, and we'll close. What do you believe is the most powerful thing that has ever happened on the face of this earth ever. I was uh, talking with some friends and I said, I said, is the cross the most supreme piece of God's power? When God sends Jesus and Jesus lives perfectly and then Jesus is killed and Isaiah 53 says it was the will of God to crush him and then Jesus dies and then scripture says, he's risen again, God raises from the dead, conquers death. What I was asking is, is that the most supreme picture of the power of God? Is that our standard? Is that the understanding for us? Is that the biggest picture of God's power? And we all came to the same consensus. In our understanding. In what we know of God. But to say that God's power in the whole scheme of everything is supreme at the cross. Period is a huge statement. Are you with me? But from our perspective, from what we know, from what the scripture says, what happens at the cross, the power of the cross, the manifestation of Jesus coming to this earth, that picture is pretty dang powerful, isn't it? That picture encapsulates, it seems, the power of God in a phenomenal picture. And so it leaves us here to answer one question. Is God able? Is He able? Is He capable? Can He? That little problem of yours, too big for your God, that little financial issue, the relational tension, the grades, the chaos of life, the angst in your heart. Is he able? But what if he doesn't? What if there's still a financial issue, though you've been responsible? What if the relational tension just can't, though you've reconciled and you worked through? What if your best friend falls victim to a huge accident? What then? Is God still not able? Of course he is. And that's why any carrot, any second chance temptation, any lure that's dangling before you can become ludicrous. And me and you can stand just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, even if God takes my life now, I will not bow to anything else because my God's able. He's big, he's faithful, he's loving, he's gracious, and his kingdom lasts forever. That's why 1 Corinthians 4, listen, says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of what church? Power.
any word that I've even said tonight cannot even begin to come close to grasping the power of God. Your acceptance of his ability, his capability, and your confession that no matter what God does, that his will will not change your view of it, it comes to fruition and it becomes personal at the cross. At the cross is where God's power becomes personal. At the cross is where the manifestation of God's power in Jesus, his broken body shed for you, becomes so intimate that through this broken body, you can have relationship restored, renewed relationship with the almighty God. Jesus broke the bread at the meal and he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And listen, church, then he holds up the cup before his blood is spilt on the cross and he says, this cup, this blood represents the new covenant. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. It's the promise of my ability that though my blood will be spilt on a cross, I will rise on the third day. I will come again. And church, we're in that season where we're awaiting his return. So tonight, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, that's what this meal is for. We take communion by intention, pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. And after softening your heart and praying and repenting for the ways that you're controlling, repenting of the ways that you're giving in as the indulgence lingers in that second and third and fourth chance temptation, you're coming up and taking this meal tonight and saying, God is able. He's able. And tonight I rest in his ability and not my own. Tonight I rest in his will and not my own. And tonight I say, my God is powerful. Whether he saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or not, my God's power is supreme, all-viewing, and eternal. Let's pray.